It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Today on the Ben Dominich Podcast, Ben revisits a conversation with the host of the Re-Education Podcast, Eli Lake. I'm happy to be joined right now by Eli Lake, host of the Re-Education Podcast with Eli Lake, which I encourage you to subscribe to. Uh, he has a great episode, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, In most recently with an a conversation with Michael Moynihan about the legacy of the great uh, Christopher Hitchens. Eli, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about some of the top stories in the foreign policy world coming out of 2022. I've talked a good bit about China, and today Putin and Xi had a virtual meeting where they you know, declared their uh, forever bromance uh, and the like against those evil people in the West. How real is that, uh, and how much have doubts about Russia uh, increased in China from your perspective since this Ukraine war began? Well, I definitely think it's real, and we've seen the warming of ties between Moscow and Beijing be- since for the last few years, really. Um, it makes sense if you think about it. These are two authoritarian states that have an interest in um, undermining, you could say, the sort of rules of the international order. They both um, see America as the enemy and America's allies as the enemy, and they want to diminish American influence in the world. So they have, um, you know, overlapping interests at this point. So I think it's important. I think the West in general is sort of late to understanding that it's pointless to try to triangulate here, which is to try to either be an ally of Russia against China or an ally of China against Russia. Um, th- those are not options available, although it would be nice if they were. And so in that respect, they do have um, abiding kind of interest. But on the other hand, they also have, uh, you know, problems. I mean, what we've seen with the Ukraine war is that the great Russian army that was so highly touted before 2022, because it had mastered these kinds of new forms of hybrid warfare, is a Potemkin joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russian army is beset with corruption. Its equipment is not reaching the front lines. Uh, it's not very good equipment. Um, the you know the morale is is quite poor. The um, officers you know are are themselves you know uh, you know becoming targeted and so forth. So. In a lot of ways, I think that that diminishes the standing of Russia in the eyes of China, and it's very much of a junior partner. So I think it's very significant. Vladimir Putin launched this war in part, according to his own words, to restore the sort of greatness of Russia to uh, on the world stage. And what he has proven is that Russia is a junior partner to the emerging power of China, which, as we also have seen, has its own problems with its pathetic and, you know, draconian zero COVID policy, which has, you know, sparked rebellions all over the country. Um, the fact that it's um, it's a highly touted vaccine uh, clearly did not work. So a lot of the states that relied on China for their patronage um, ended up having an inferior vaccine and their population suffered. 
So these are two countries that are definitely aligning, and that is a problem for U.S. interests. But we have to keep in mind that there are also structural weaknesses with these countries as well because they're such authoritarian monsters. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You know, you saw, obviously, the visit from Vladimir Zelensky to Washington that was much hyped and resulted in this, you know, address to the Congress. I'm curious about what you think about American domestic attitudes toward the conflict in Ukraine. They've sent them all this money, all this weaponry. They still generally have the support of the American population, certainly the support of Democrats. Republicans seem to be more evenly split now, though, about uh, continued funding or feeling like you know this is becoming too costly in certain ways. What do you uh, see as the as the way forward going into next year? Uh, and do you think that Ukraine is going to be satisfied uh, with some type of peace deal that ultimately does not, uh, you know, include uh, some kind of opportunity for them to take Crimea? I mean, at this point, the Russians have shown zero interest in any kind of peace agreement with Ukraine. So we should make that very clear. The problem is not. Ukraine, the problem is not, you know, America, the Biden administration. The problem is the person who launched the war, Vladimir Putin, and he has shown no kind of contrition, no sense that he has bitten off more than he could chew, no interest in um, approaching um, the negotiating table in a war that uh, is costing his country dearly in both blood and treasure. Second point about what your question about the domestic situation and the Republican Party. Um, I understand, uh, and I want to say this with some sympathy here, that after six years now of, you know, moronic uh, neo-McCarthyite bleeding about everyone who disagrees with you on foreign policy is a Russian agent (laughs) and all of the sham and um, just chicanery and nonsense of what we call Russiagate, I can understand why a lot of Republicans would throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to have any of it. But in this particular case, we should not lose sight of the fact that Russia is an adversary of the United States, that Russia is a force for destabilization in the world, and that we now have a country and an army that is willing and capable of exposing Russia's army for being, as I said before, the sort of Potemkin mess that it is, that this is the best money the United States has ever spent. Mm -hmm. No Americans are dying in this war. The Ukrainians are bravely defending their own country, and they are hopefully providing a kind of cautionary tale, a sort of lesson for other uh, you know, aggressive, expansionist-minded tyrants, whether it be chi- uh, China and, you know, Xi or Khamenei in Iran, um, that it's not going to be so easy. You can't just have a cakewalk and take over countries because you feel like doing it like Vladimir Putin. Let his experience be a lesson to them. And to have that lesson being taught without any Americans having to be forward deployed is next to miraculous. So it's a great geopolitical bargain for the United States. It's actually very cheap 
to do it this way. It's preferable to do it this way. And um, so I think it's I understand why a lot of Republicans, again, are um, so turned off and, and disgusted by Russiagate. And I share their disgust in that regard. But we should not lose sight of the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the end of this war, do you believe that that's something we're going to see in the coming year, early in the coming year? Or do you think it's going to potentially go through the full year? I don't know. Um, I will say this, that um, the price the Ukrainians are paying right now with the attacks on their infrastructure, the attacks on their energy, um, the shortages, the blackouts and everything like that, is extraordinarily high. And the fact that there is no indication, not only from Zelensky himself, but the, you know, the, his posi- he's a democratically elected leader. He, the Ukrainians are not interested in um, being forced to the negotiating table. They're not interested in a kind of halfway peace. The Russians initiated this war, and they are going to, and they're, they're, they're unfortunately... Uh, exacting a horrible and, and needless and reckless price on the Ukrainians. It's a terrible thing that they're doing. I hope that, you know, the Putin and his cronies will pay. You know, I hope their children will never be allowed to travel to the West or go to Western universities and all of that. But if the Ukrainians are willing to sort of tough this out, then I, I just don't understand the logic of having, you know, other powers that are just sort of watching to tell them, no, 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 enough is enough. So... Mm-hmm. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on our relationship with NATO and EU members uh, in in the wake of this war. There had obviously been a a real pressure campaign uh, during the Trump era to make them pay more for their own defense. Uh, One of the big things that the uh, President Biden touts is that, you know, NATO is more united than ever and the like. Uh, it does seem to have been strengthened uh, by this conflict, and obviously uh, you've seen uh, the uh, the moves from Finland and Sweden uh, as it regards joining NATO. Uh, tell me a little bit about your perspective on these nations, and do you believe that they really will end up significantly increasing their defense expenditures uh, in the way that we've seen Japan do in anticipation of more Chinese belligerence? All signs at this point point to two really Uh, almost revolutionary developments in Europe. One is what you just mentioned, which is that I do think we have seen commitments to actually, you know, have, you know, realistic and serious spending on their own defense. And that that will take more than just the money. It will take kind of a a, a sense of national nerve. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you worry about, you kind of have to look that country to country. But the other big thing is the, is the is the emphasis now on building nuclear power plants. It's it's the it's the thing that um, it, it really we're going to look back and we're going to say the no nukes movement of the 70s and 80s after Chernobyl and Three Mile Island and then later with Fukuyama in Japan. We were um, hobbling ourselves in the West because mm-hmm. it made us more dependent on countries like Russia. Uh, for that matter, Iran, um, you know, for our energy and for to, to be able to have nuclear power, to see that in Germany, to see that, you know, France is already kind of ahead on this one. That is the game changer. And in order to make that transition, guess who's buying time for Europe to wean itself from Russian natural gas? Well, it's the grave Ukrainians. Again, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I, I see it as, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, Congress is giving them $44 billion more dollars. It's, it's, it's on the cheap. It's a bargain. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that when it comes to uh, the domestic arguments within the right about foreign policy, a lot of what we've seen uh, emerge in uh, the wake of the 2022 midterms and the like is a real question about whether there's going to be as much of a presence as a lot of people thought there was going to be for folks who are kind of questioning the considered mainstream conservative uh, view of foreign policy on the right. You had a lot of people who had raised concerns about that. People like Blake Masters, uh, you know, end up losing in their elections. You know, J.D. Vance is someone who's been, uh, you know, a critic of kind of that conventional approach. What do you think is going to happen in the next year as some of these newer members show up in Washington? Do you think it's going to have a significant impact in reorienting the future looking foreign policy of the right? Well, I mean, there's a great book by Matthew Continetti called The Right, which looks at the last hundred years of conservative thought in America and the Republican Party. And there's always been a tradition among conservatives that is sometimes known as isolationism and is more inward looking. And so that's something in some ways to be expected. But I would also say that a lot of the um, kind of, you know, new critics of internationalism, you might want to say, it's it's there's an expression that you know the generals are always fighting the last war where well these people are opposing the last war they're mm-hmm. opposing the nation building war of iraq and afghanistan which i think if you were to ask you know even liberal internationalists like myself and i say small l not like big yes. l but you know what i mean um you know yeah i don't know i think there are limits to what the united states can do in terms of you know building modern democracies and you know, the middle of the Islamic world, 100%. So I would sort of agree with that. When you're talking about supporting the NATO alliance, that's a very, very different um, expenditure. It's a very different kind of foreign policy than the George W. Bush, almost neo-utopian wars of the early 2000s. And I think, that, and, and, and by the way, that, that sort of is sparked by 9-11 and the war on terror. Um, you know, as we're 20 years away or more than 20 years away from that horrific event, there is a, you know, there's a kind of return to a level set um, in terms of U.S. foreign policy. We can't be everywhere at the same time. So I would hope that the J.D. Vance's and some of these newer members of the Republican Party, when they came to Washington, would kind of uh, take a longer view and accept that some of their critiques have already been taken in to account by the foreign policy establishment of the Republican Party, that they're in some cases pushing on more of an open door than they might think, but that that should not preclude someone like J.D. Vance from becoming a supporter or, you know, or understanding the strategic necessity of giving Ukraine all of the equipment it needs to, uh, you know, repel the, and break the Russian army. I mean, those are two separate things. You can say, I don't think we should do nation building wars in the Middle East and still think that it's a good idea to teach Vladimir Putin lessons so that he doesn't get away with, you know, the, the sort of, you know, naked and, and vicious aggression that he started a year ago. Eli, before I let you go, uh, go ahead and plug yeah. your podcast. I uh, I was listening to you on uh, the drive in today talking about Christopher Hitchens uh, oh, well, and his legacy so with Michael Moynihan. Um, tell us, uh, why should p- folks listen to the re-education? <laughs> well, the re-education is a really, I, I love doing it. Um, you, can, you can still read my column in the New York Sun, and I write a lot for commentary, but I spend a lot of time on this. There is an audio essay in every episode. There's an interesting 
interview. We have done really cool shows on everything from uh, Iran's war on cultural freedom. Uh, if you're interested in the history of the FBI, there was a great episode I recently did with the author of a new biography of Hoover named Beverly Gage, where I get into uh, J. Edgar Hoover and you know his sort of uh, you know surveillance of Martin Luther King and the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, it is, I think, a really cool podcast for people who um, want a, a, an intellectual perspective on current events and culture. Um, but still want to have some fun with it. Um, I, you know, they, we, I do about one of them a week, sometimes two a week. Um, and we cover, we cover the gamut. I mean, there was one I did on Christmas songs, which I think people will really like. Yes. Um, so check it out. There's about 60 episodes. There's a long archive now. And, um, I think everyone, I think, I think it's a good show. <laughs> You'll like it. Great. Folks should check it out. Re, the reeducation with, uh, Eli Lake. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time to join me today, Eli. Oh, thank you for having me, Ben. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.